hello and greetings. Welcome to the iFormerX podcast, where we explore the evidence that matters to ambulatory care pharmacy practice. My name is Stuart Haynes, and I'm the host of the podcast. And I get to work with lots of volunteers who give their time, their talent, and, and sometimes their money to create this online community of practice. Our mission at iFormerX is to help you provide the best possible care to patients, and to use evidence to inform your decisions. So if you're not already a member of the iFormerX community, I encourage you to head on over to our website, iFormerX.org, and sign up today. And it's free for all health professionals and any student studying to become a health professional. In today's episode, we'll be talking about an educational intervention that was intended to reduce unnecessary medication use in older adults. So basically, this was a deep prescribing intervention. But spoiler alert, this intervention was not effective. It did not result in a reduction in the number of medications prescribed. Now, you may be asking, well, why are you reviewing this study? If this intervention didn't achieve the intended outcome, why are we even talking about it? Well, I think there are some important lessons to be learned from this study, and that's why I invited one of my dear colleagues, Dr. Cashel Lachman, who has a master's degree in instructional systems development, to review this study. And I think many of us have this naive impression that if you want to change behavior, all you need to do is provide some education about the issues, and voila, abracadabra, problem solved. But instructional design and implementation science have clearly shown that educational interventions can't solve all of your problems, and they must be well-designed to be effective. More on those two concepts in a moment. But first, let me introduce our guest today. Dr. Cashel Lachman is on faculty at the University of Iowa and practices as a palliative care specialist at the University of Iowa Hospital and Clinics. And her partner in writing this commentary, researching this topic, is Dr. Sarah Greiner, who is a PGY2 ambulatory care pharmacy practice resident at the University of Iowa Hospital and Clinics and has a keen interest in instructional design. So, Cashel, Sarah, it's great to have you both on the iFormerX podcast today. Thanks for having us. It's great to be here to discuss the study and strategies to advance changes in clinical practice, which is certainly a tremendous challenge that we all face. Thanks for having us on. So, Cashel, before we talk about the study you reviewed in your commentary, I'd like to talk a little bit about instructional systems design and why some educational interventions work and others don't. What are some of the best practices and guiding principles that increase the likelihood of changing behavior, be that patient behavior or provider behavior? Hmm. Let's talk about this in the context of an example. Um, So one of the quality measures in palliative care, which is my practice area, is ensuring that each patient we see with pain has a thorough pain assessment or pain history. And how do we know that we did that? It's evidenced by our documentation of five of seven components of a pain history. Now, let's say my team is only meeting this quality measure that the Joint Commission looks at for 50% of the patients that we see who have pain. 
out. That That is not our goal. We want to do this for all of our patients, right? So it would be very presumptuous of me to jump in and deliver a CE to my team on pain assessment. My team is largely made up of very experienced specialists. So I need to step back and be curious to try to understand what's really going on here. So first, I'll conduct what we call a gap analysis. I'll take some time to examine the current behaviors and their related outcomes, and we'll all sort of define what we're aspiring to get to, which is 100% for us, right? And next, I need to explore and analyze all the possible contributing root causes or factors that are resulting in our current behaviors and outcomes. Um, And then I'm looking at what factors could not only enable our ability to get to our aspirational behaviors and outcomes, but also what factors would undermine our ability to get there. So we call this all a root cause analysis or an RCA. And pharmacists who are trained in uh, medication safety who do RCAs are very familiar with this approach and concept. When I'm thinking about changing behavior outside of the context of medication safety, you might see a lot of similarities. We want to systematically examine several factors that impact human behavior. And I think of five categories of factors I look for. The first is resources and capacity, structures and processes, information and feedback, motivation, and then finally, our knowledge and skills. So when we think about resources and capacity, I'm considering issues like staffing, Are there enough staff or are teams overloaded with patients, resulting in shortcuts in pain assessment or its documentation? I'm going to look at practical issues like, are there enough computers in the workroom to complete documentation? Do all the staff have access to the relevant resources like pain flow sheets in our EHR? For structure and processes, I'm thinking about issues like organizational reporting structures and workflow, and that includes workflow in our EHR. I'm a teaching hospital, so I'd examine if rotating learners versus permanent staff are being tasked with pain history and its documentation. If trainees are tasked with this, what's the workflow for co-signing and note review? And then the third category that I mentioned is information and feedback. So what's being communicated and how? Do all of our team members know this is a quality measure? And what feedback are they receiving on how they're performing as a team member relative to this measure? And how and when is that feedback being given? Motivation is the fourth category to consider. What incentives promote our current behavior versus our aspirational change behaviors? I'd include system-related wellness issues in this motivation category as well. And I'd also look at organizational culture and values. And finally, we arrive at our fifth category, knowledge, skills, and some attitudes there too. Maybe new or transitory team members don't have adequate knowledge of the quality measure itself or the procedural knowledge of how to document the pain history in the EHR. So how do you get all this information you need for an RCA? It's really through a combination of interviews, focus groups, surveys, direct observation, and reviewing what we call extant data. That's just essentially work samples and reports. And you want to make sure that you're including perspectives from everyone involved. In healthcare, that's going to mean perspectives of people from different professions and with varying experiences, roles, and power within the system. You know, the thing is that education is often a needed component of interventions to change behavior, but I'd say rarely, if ever, is an educational intervention sufficient to change behavior. Typically, I find there are factors in each of the categories I mentioned that are contributing to behavioral 
patterns and outcomes. Now you may think, well, what's the harm in just always providing some education to be on the safe side? Well, I'd ask you to imagine a time when you sat through education where someone was teaching you something you already knew. You might have been sitting there thinking, they're really out of touch. Or I already know this. I could be teaching this. This is a waste of my time. I have important other things to do. So presuming that education is needed when that's not the root cause can result in mandatory trainings that will actually be demotivating and frustrating for adult learners. So, Sarah, let's talk about the Optimize study. This study was published in JAMA Internal Medicine in May 2022, and the paper is entitled Deprescribing Education Versus Usual Care for Patients with Cognitive Impairment and Primary Care Clinicians, the Optimize Pragmatic Cluster Randomized Trial. And we provide a link to the paper on our website. And of course, I encourage everyone to read the paper, but can you give us a brief summary of the study methods and results? Absolutely, Stuart. In summary, the optimized trial was a pragmatic cluster randomized trial evaluating the impact of deprescribing educational interventions. This study used a dual intervention aimed at both primary care clinicians and their patients who were 65 or older with dementia or mild cognitive impairment. It was conducted within 18 adult primary care clinics in the Kaiser Permanente Colorado Health System. Patients and clinicians at nine clinics received deprescribing educational interventions compared to nine other clinics who received usual care. The patient-focused educational intervention consisted of a mailed brochure titled Managing Medication and a Deprescribing Questionnaire. An accompanying letter encouraged patients to share this information with their family members. The clinician intervention included an initial educational presentation on deprescribing at a monthly clinician meeting, which was then followed by monthly distributions of a deprescribing tip sheet to the providers. Additionally, clinicians received electronic health record notifications when they were seeing a patient in clinic who had received the mailed intervention. Study outcomes included the number of prescribed chronic medications and number of patients prescribed one or more potentially inappropriate medications, or PIMS. The optimized PIMS list was partially based on the BEERS list and included 85 medication formulations across 10 medication classes. A few example medication classes included are select antihistamines, antipsychotics, benzodiazepines, and opioids, among others. At six months, both the average number of long-term medications and the percentage of persons prescribed one or more potentially inappropriate medications decreased from baseline, but was not significantly different between study arms. The number of chronic medications was reduced from seven at baseline to approximately six and a half in both groups at six months, and the percentage of patients taking one or more potentially inappropriate medication was reduced from approximately 30% at baseline to around 20% at six months. So, Sarah, despite the negative results of this study, there are a few design features that I think are are real strengths, and the investigators are certainly to be applauded for this work. Um, I'm wondering what you think are the key strengths of the study, and, and why didn't this intervention work? What are some of the features of the intervention that may explain why it wasn't terribly effective, and are there any confounders or other factors that may have contributed to the results? The key strengths of the optimized trial include its pragmatic design and use of a pilot phase to test their educational interventions. Additionally, I appreciate that they focus on clinical outcomes, looking at prescribing of potentially inappropriate medications, rather than on learner reactions to the intervention or a demonstration of learning in a simulated environment. 
there are several variables that could confound the study's negative findings. It is unknown the percentage of patients in this study with dementia severe enough to warrant medication management by a caregiver rather than themselves. It is also unknown how often the mailed ed educational materials were reviewed by patients' caregivers since they were addressed only to the patient and encouraged to be shared with family members. Racial and ethnic demographics across study arms also differed. A previous study found non-white Medicare beneficiaries were less likely than white Medicare beneficiaries to be willing to stop a medication. However, attitudes across racial and ethnic groups towards deprescribing were not reported in the present optimized trial. So um, I agree with Sarah that a strength of the optimized study was that investigators pilot tested their educational interventions, and they used some educational design features that have been shown to be effective in systematic reviews that look specifically at CME effectiveness. So some of these features include spacing doses of education over time and using multiple teaching techniques. But there are a few other evidence-based CME design features that I think could have potentially impacted the effectiveness of their intervention. Specifically, those would be interactivity, feedback for providers when we look at the clinician education arm, and opportunities for reflection beyond the deprescribing surveys that they used with the clinician arm. So in their pilot phase, prescribers self-identified a lack of confidence and a lack of knowledge in navigating deprescribing conversations. Now, these are really goals of care conversations, and practice with feedback might have better aligned with the behaviors that they wanted to change. In palliative care, our goals of care conversation training includes scripts, similar to the ones they provided in handouts, but we also practice those in fishbowls with reflection and feedback because every patient scenario is different um, and scripts don't always work in some of these complex conversations. So you need to have that experience and confidence in how to navigate when things come up that you don't expect. But this is really all a bit of speculation on my part. So I think including a process evaluation of their educational intervention would have helped us all better diagnose opportunities for improvement. In the pilot, prescribers requested conversation tips and they got them in those handouts. But I wondered if they read and referred to the handouts. Did they feel confident to engage in deprescribing conversations after the handouts? If so, what barriers did they encounter in trying to engage in those conversations? And on the patient and caregiver side, I wondered, did any caregivers receive the brochure, as Sarah mentioned, but also did they actually read it um, and refer to it? And then what did they do about it? So these are some of the issues I would explore in a process evaluation. So Cashel, is, is all hope lost? Uh, how, how do the results of the study compare with other educational interventions intended to reduce unnecessary medication use? And if I wanted to implement an educational intervention in my practice, one that is is directed towards prescribers, what are some of the key considerations that I should be thinking about? Well, I'd say hope is certainly not lost. We have to live in great hope always, right? And we learn from every study. Interestingly, another pragmatic cluster randomized trial called the D-Prescribe trial um, actually evaluated deprescribing educational interventions also targeted both at patients and prescribers. And this was in comparison to usual care. So the deprescribed study was conducted in community pharmacies in Canada, and they focused on medications from five different classes that were taken by adults 65 years old. And I would add that they excluded people with dementia and those living in an assisted living facility. 
So this was a broader and different patient study population, but they had a narrower focus on the types of medications targeted. Recall in the optimized trial, they looked at 85 different uh, medication formulations across 10 medication classes. So the deprescribed educational intervention was targeted specifically for one of those five different classes of medications that a patient was taking. And the intervention was initiated by those community pharmacists, educating both the patients and the prescribers. The patient received an educational brochure, and it included why that specific medication might be more harmful than helpful to them and potential alternative treatments. The sedative hypnotics brochure that they used also included a visual tapering chart and education about tapering. The community pharmacist also sent the prescriber an educational letter that outlined evidence specific to that medication and a recommendation contextualized to the patient. In Quebec, this type of letter is called a pharmaceutical opinion, and it's actually reimbursable. Interesting side note. But anyway, at six months, this is the same time point as the optimized trial, by the way, 12% of the usual care group versus 43% of the intervention group no longer filled prescriptions for the target medications. So that was a risk difference of 35%. What made that study different? There's probably a lot of factors we could discuss. I will say that they did include a very thorough process evaluation in their study. So we have a better idea of how many patients looked at the brochure and what prescribers did with the letter and things like that. So what should you keep in mind if you want to implement an educational intervention with your prescribers with hopes to change practice? You know, when we think about research, we like to focus on external validity of studies. But when it comes to practice change, in our own health systems, we really need to customize interventions for our local context. That requires using an instructional design, community-based participatory research, or implementation science framework and lens. So all of these approaches start with a thorough analysis that includes a wide variety of perspectives, especially patients, caregivers, and frontline clinicians. So First, going back to our RCA, you know, is there even an indication for education? Are there issues with knowledge, attitudes, or skills? Don't just look at that category. Look at those other categories of factors we discussed earlier. Then complete that educational needs analysis if you find education is indicated. Both deprescribe and optimize trials used a pilot testing phase for their educational interventions. And you absolutely should take the time to do pilot testing and ensure that your final design plan addresses the findings from your needs analysis and pilot testing. You want to make sure you have alignment between what you find in your needs analysis, your learning objectives, your instructional activities, and your assessment. For example, if you want prescribers to start having goals of care conversations about medications, give them time to practice and some feedback on how they're doing. If you take a shortcut or shortchange your design plan due to resource issues, you need to recognize you could be compromising the effectiveness of your intervention. And finally, I'd say don't try to do everything at once. We all fall into this trap sometimes, but cognitive overload can compromise your effectiveness. From my perspective, focusing on fewer medications and medication classes in the deprescribed study really made it easier for them to tailor and provide education for both patients and prescribers that avoided cognitive overload. 
And remember that even the best, most effective educational activity will not change behaviors if other factors like structure and processes, motivation, information and feedback, or resources aren't also adequately addressed. Well, Sarah, Cashel, it I'm so pleased that you agreed to write this commentary and participate in today's podcast. Education is a potentially powerful tool, but like any tool, it must be used under the appropriate circumstances and be designed with behavior change and implementation science principles in mind. Tell us what you think. What in your mind are some key takeaways from this study? And be sure to leave a comment by visiting and logging into the iFormerX website. And for those of you who are board-certified ambulatory care pharmacists, did you know you can earn board recertification and continuing education credit by listening to this podcast and reading the written commentary? Well, it's true. We've partnered with the American Pharmacists Association to produce their evidence-based practice literature evaluation series, which is available online, on demand, anytime, anywhere through APHA. So just click on that link on our website posted just below the written commentary to to learn more. And lastly, I want to say thank you to my wife, Dr. Sina Haynes, for not only being a contributor to iFormerX, but also supporting me in my efforts over the past 12 years to make this community of practice a reality. Not only has Sina given her time and talent by writing commentaries, reviewing commentaries, and participating in podcasts, but she's supported our efforts through the financial gifts that we've given over the years to pay for things like, well, software, web hosting, and equipment. So thank you, Sina, for being a dedicated ambulatory care practitioner, a champion for well-being, and a true partner. Until next time, this is Stuart Haynes signing off. Be well, my friends. Mm-hmm.